Well, good morning. Man, it's so good to be with you guys today up here in Quakertown. My name is Ryan. I have the privilege of overseeing our Pennsburg campus, but I'm honored to be able to, to be here with you guys today and share a little bit from God's Word. When Pastor John uh, mentioned that we were going to be doing one of our switch-up weeks just a few weeks ago, uh, I believe that God just kind of put something on my heart that was really for both of our campuses. And so last week I preached this same message to our, our Pennsburg family and wanted to share this message with you today as well. And this morning what we're going to be talking about and looking at is the church. And what does it really mean to, to be a part of the church? Not just to attend a church or to go to church, but what does it mean to, to live out the purpose of being the church of Jesus Christ? And the main idea I want to continually come back to today is this, that the church is not a place that I go or an event that I attend, that the church is a movement that I'm a part of and a family that I belong to. Here's why what we're talking about today is so important. Over the last uh, few years here at Morningstar, our church has looked uh, drastically different. For those of you who were maybe not part of our church over the last couple years, or before the last couple years, you maybe not, not even notice this, but over the last two years, um, our church has, has changed a lot. We've opened a second campus. We've grown by around three or 400 people weekly showing up um, to our campuses for, for church, which means that maybe half of the people that are here on a Sunday morning, you're kind of new to our church family over these last couple years. And that's not a bad thing at all. It's a really good thing that we've grown and that we've reached more people. And, and maybe you're here and you're new to the church over those last couple years. And, and maybe it was, you know, during COVID and, and, and your church, you were part of another church, but the church didn't open up. I know a lot of people started coming to our church because they were part of churches that hadn't opened back up in person and they wanted to be around other believers and have that kind of face-to-face -face interaction. I know that there's some of you who are here who didn't even know Jesus over the last couple years, and, and during this time, you know, God drew you to himself and changed your life, and you're here at this church, and you're part of our church family, and God is using, hopefully, this church to help grow and mature you in your faith. Whatever it is, I, I say all that to say this, that because there's a lot of new faces over these last couple years, there's many of you who might not even fully understand what it really means to be the church, right? Like, we look at church as simply something that we go to, but church is so much more than just an event that we attend or, or a place that we go. We are are part of a, a movement of God, and, and that's the, the greater church as a whole, but individually then here at Morningstar Fellowship, we're, we're called to be a family, right? Like this is not just something we attend, this is a family that we're called to belong to, and so what does that actually look like? Like how do we live out the purpose that God has given us, not just as the church as a whole, but as, as our local expression of the body of Christ here at Morningstar Fellowship? And I think a lot of times when it comes to church, we've kind of neutered down the church, if I could use that phrase. Uh, we've kind of made the church so much less than. We've, we've accepted a much uh, smaller understanding of what the church was created to be. We've settled for, for a church that really is just kind of a spectator sport. We show up, we listen to somebody talk, we show up, we listen to a band play, we kind of go through the motions, we check a box off, we've done our, our Christian deed for the week, and we kind of just go about our life. And we miss out on, on when we settle for that kind of Christianity, when we settle for that kind of church, Church, we miss out on the importance of what Jesus has invited us to be a part of as his church. And so this morning, we're going to look at that. And I heard somebody say, like this Leonard Ravenhill, he was talking about the modern church, and he said this, he says, the church right now is more fashion than passion, is more pathetic than it is prophetic, is more superficial than it is supernatural. And I think in a lot of ways, that's true, that that the church we've allowed, we've settled for a much less than what God has created the church to actually be. We've settled for church simply being something that we go to or something that we intend when really it's meant to be something that we live out in community together. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look through scripture, we're going to look at God's word, and we're going to look at what does his word say about his church, and what does it look like for us to be a part of his church, and to live this out. And to do that, we're going to start in Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus talks about establishing and building his church. And this is what he says in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 through 18. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Like, who do people believe that I am, is what he's asking. Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or, or one of the other prophets. Then he asked his disciples, but who do you say I am? Like, who do you believe that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah the Son 
of the living God. Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. In verse 18, Jesus said, now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. The words that Jesus used there for church is the Greek word ekklesia, which literally means the called out assembly or congregations. Like the word for church there is so much more than just a weekly gathering that you attend. It's so much more than a a building that you say, well, where do you go to church? Well, I go to this church. It's so much more than that. The word is, is, is rich in purpose. It means the set out ones, the called out ones, the set apart people, God's people. In fact, I love how it says it in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 where it says, but you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are royal priests. You are a holy nation, God's very own possession. And as a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. The church is so much more than a place I attend or a place that I go. It's a a movement that we're a part of and a family that we belong to. Now, going back to Matthew chapter 16, what's Jesus saying when when Peter makes this declaration. Peter has just declared that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah. And, and, and Jesus says, upon the rock, I will, upon that rock, I will build my church, right? And, and many people look at this and they say, well, what, what Jesus is doing there is he's, he's declaring that Peter is going to be the foundation of the church. And he's like the first pope of the church, right? He's the first person that was in charge. And, and I will say this, Peter is going to have a very significant role in the founding of the church. If you read through the book of Acts, if you read through the New Testament, you're going to see Peter mentioned a lot because God is going to use him as, as a pastor and a leader in the first church. But Peter is not the foundation of, of the church of Jesus Christ. In fact, Peter, just like all of us, is flawed. He sins. He messes up at times. The the church of Jesus Christ is not built on the foundation of a person or a celebrity pastor or anybody else. The foundation that Jesus is declaring that the church is going to be built on is the declaration that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the son of the living God. When, When Peter made that declaration and all of the other disciples would make that faith declaration, he's saying, on that foundation, the foundation of Jesus and Jesus alone, he says, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not be able to conquer it, will not be able to overcome it. That's what he's saying. And we see that exactly taking place throughout history, that from that point forward, Jesus established his church. And there's been nothing, not even the gates of hell, that have been able to slow down a move of God in this world, the church of God being established. We see this taking place not too long after that. Jesus would ultimately lay down his life. He would do what he came to do. He would lay down his life as a sacrifice in our place for our sins. But death would not be the end of his story because he is the resurrection and the life. And it was impossible for death to have a hold on him. He overcomes death, rising again victorious, appearing to his disciples and over 500 people. And he says to them, you will be my witnesses. You're going to be my witnesses firsthand of of the fact that I've overcome death in the grave and I am alive and you're to go the Bible says in Matthew 28 he gives them their mission their great commission it's our mission as well Matthew 28 he says go into all the world preach the gospel baptizing them in the name of the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you and be sure of this I am with you always even to the end of the age can you imagine the weight of what that feels like for this young church these small group of followers they're tasked with this weight of of being his witnesses to the entire world. I don't know about you, but in that moment, I would feel a little bit overwhelmed. We're just a small group of people. We don't really know what it takes. And fortunately, Jesus did not give them this mission and tell them to do it in their own power and their own strength. See, in the beginning of Acts, right before Jesus ascends back into heaven, he gives his disciples some final instruction. And this was maybe between 40 and 50 days after he rose from the grave. Acts chapter 1, we see this. Jesus said in verse 4, Do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift that he promised, as I told you before. See, John baptized with water, but in just a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom. I love this about the disciples because they still don't really fully get it. And, and I, I appreciate that because there's times in my life where I feel like God has had to tell me things over and over again before I get it. And this is kind of one of those situations right now. Like, 
Jesus had just overcome death. He's talked about establishing his kingdom, not an earthly kingdom, an eternal kingdom, a kingdom that will never end. And they're so focused not on the eternal kingdom, but on the earthly kingdom. And so right now, even after Jesus dies and rises again, what are their, what's their thoughts? Is this when you're going to restore Israel? Are you going to get rid of the Romans now and you're going to establish, reestablish Israel as this world power? And I love Jesus' answer because if you're a parent, you've, made this, uh, you've, you've had this answer to your kids before. If you've, how many of you have ever been on a long road trip and your kids would ask the question, are we, are we there yet? And you just simply go, we'll get there when we get there, or something along those lines, right? You don't, like, because they don't understand time. If you tell them nine hours, they're going to ask you in 30 seconds. If nine hours has passed, then you don't want to do that the whole trip. Or just the better thing to do is just drive through the night when they're sleeping, right? It's just better all around. Or maybe your kids have asked, why are we doing this? Why are we going here? Why, 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 right? And you just go, because I say so. I want you to look at Jesus' answer after they ask him. Is this the time you're going you're to restore the kingdom of Israel? Is this what you're going to do? He replied in verse 7, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. Right? That's not, it's above your pay grade, disciples. That's not your concern. You don't need to worry about that. You don't need to have that figured out. That's not what this is all about. This is what he says, though, in verse 8. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus gave them a commission, a mission to accomplish, a purpose to chase after, and now he tells them, I'm going to give you the power to accomplish that purpose. And so right after that, the Bible says that Jesus ascends to heaven. And when you read about it, the disciples, the Bible says, they're just staring up into the sky. And this was just, just to grasp this for a moment. They're they're just staring up into the sky, Jesus. And I, and I understand it. I mean, if I would have been there, I'd probably be doing the same thing. You would be as well, right? Because you've seen Jesus. You've, go, you've done life with him. You've seen Jesus do miracles. You've seen him feed multitudes. You've seen him heal people that were, were, were sick. You've seen him raise people from the dead. You've seen him walk on water without, like, jet skis and, like, water boats. Like, there's pretty impressive things. But you have never seen him fly before. And that was new, right? And so now they're looking, and this is like, this is a new skill that he's developed. Right now he can, he can fly. He's really a superhero at this point. And they're just staring up into the sky. And this is how I imagine it. This isn't in the Bible, but this is kind of how I imagine it happening. Because the Bible says Jesus gets up there, and he has to send angels down because they're just staring, right? And he told them to go and wait in Jerusalem, but all they're doing is staring up into the sky. And they don't even see him anymore. Maybe they're just waiting for him to come back down. Like the elevator went up, it has to come down as well. And so they're looking up in the sky in the Bible. I can just imagine Jesus is up in heaven and he looks down. He's like, what are, what are they doing? Like, why are they, why? I told them to go to Jerusalem and they're just staring into the sky. And so he sends some angels down. The angels show up and they're like, what are you doing? Jesus told you to go to Jerusalem. Listen, he's not coming back. I mean, he will eventually come back, but it's not right now, so you're not going to want to sit here and wait. You'll be waiting for a long time, so you go into Jerusalem and do what he told you to do, and so that's exactly what the disciples do. They leave. They go into Jerusalem. There's about 120 of them. They're together. They're united. They're praying. They're believing for what Jesus promised them. They don't even know what that promise looks like, but they're waiting so they have the power to do what Jesus has commissioned them to do. And we see this taking place, the very beginning of Acts chapter 2, what we call the day of Pentecost, what we look at really as, as that beginning, that early church, that, that ecclesia that Jesus has come to establish, this new covenant church. The day of Pentecost is the day that that church is unleashed. The power of that church is unleashed in the world. And you read in the beginning of Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, the Bible says that what sounded like a rushing wind appeared, and, and what, what looked like flames of fire appeared on their, their heads. And I don't know if, if there was a loud wind, wind throughout the whole city and if people all saw those flames of fire, but what I do know is that wind and fire represent two things. That wind represents the power of God and fire represents the passion of God. And I know from this point forward and this day that their lives were drastically changed, that there was a power that came from on high that they did not have before the Holy Spirit filled their lives. And there was a passion that they had to do what God had called them to do that they did not have before that day. The Bible says that not only did they have this new power and new passion, but that there was also, uh, they began to speak in other languages as the Lord gave them the ability. It wasn't languages that they were taught or that they knew. They just started speaking in tongues. And when you read Acts 2, it says that there was 14, it mentions 14 different areas, 14 different dialects where different languages were spoken that were represented in Jerusalem at that time. People from all over the first century world, Jewish, Jewish people from all over the world that weren't necessarily followers of Christ, and they start hearing the message of the gospel, they 
start hearing the praises of God being declared in their language. And they're amazed by that because they know that these are just the uneducated Galileans, right? They're, all of a sudden, they're like, they don't speak our language. They don't know our dialects. And they are preaching the gospel in our language. The Bible says that they are amazed at what God is doing in that moment. But there was also some of them who weren't just amazed. There was also some of them that were like, you know what? They're probably drunk. That's what they said, like they're, they're probably been drinking, which to me is funny because I've never met somebody who got drunk and got smarter, right? Like I've never, never met somebody be like, you know what, you really turn into a really smart person. When you drink, when you get drunk, all, you know you speak Mandarin when you get drunk? That's amazing. It's a, never met somebody like that. So I don't know why they assume that, but I do know when Peter started preaching, he started by saying, they're not drunk, it's only nine o'clock in the morning. That's how, that's how he started. That's a great start to a sermon, by the way, right? They're not drunk. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. What you are hearing and experiencing is what the prophets prophesied would take place. That at the last time, in the last days, in the end times, your sons and daughters will prophesy and speak in tongues. This is the fulfillment of that taking place. Exactly what Jesus said. And he starts preaching at this moment. And he starts declaring in who Jesus is. He said, Jesus is the Messiah. He was the Son of God. You guys killed him. But guess what? It was all part of God's plan. It was all part of God's plan of redemption from the beginning of time to put his son as a sacrifice for your sins in your place. And then he said to him, if you need to turn to Jesus, you need to repent for your sins, which means to do a 180 from the direction you're going. You need to receive forgiveness. You need to be baptized. You need to start following Jesus. And the Bible says at the end of that sermon, 3,000 people responded to the gospel. They went from a church of around 120 followers of Christ to 3,120 in a moment. Come on, can we say that's some explosive church growth? Like we've had, we've had a, a growth of a few hundred people over the last couple of years. I don't know how you even manage that. If we went from with the size we are now to 3,000 people more than, I don't even know how you, how you disciple those people, how you care for those people, how you do anything, but this is exactly what happened. It was a supernatural move of God. And then at the end of Acts chapter 2, we begin to see what this early church looked like. And this is really what I want to focus in on today. What was the DNA, the culture, the identity of this new church? Because I think if we're going to be the church that God has called us to be, if, if the American church is going to be the church that God has set us apart to be, and we're going to actually live this out, we need to get back to some of those defining characteristics that we see in the early church. Because can I tell you, the mission has not changed. The mission that Jesus gave those early disciples to go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples, that mission has not changed at all. We're still called to go into the world to make a difference, to change the world with the hope of the gospel. But can I tell you this, we'll never see the world change with the hope of the gospel by just going to church. We'll never, we'll never do what God has called us to do simply by attending church, going to church, checking off the box. It's when we become the church, when we, be the, when we are the church that we get to see God work through us to change the world the way he's called us to. And so let's look at Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. It says this. It says, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. And a deep sense of awe came over all of them. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all of the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and they shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. I want to quickly talk about five things we see in this early church, five characteristics that define this early church that I believe that we need to, we need to try to, 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 to live out in our lives as followers of Christ today. The first one that we see is this. They were full of people who were fully devoted. From the very beginning of those verses, it says that all of the disciples devo devoted themselves. They chose to be fully devoted, to be all in, to be fully committed. When you look at this early church, you see that they were united in purpose. There was a, a supernatural unity that they, were, that they were chasing after together. In Acts chapter 4, verse 32, it says that all the believers were united in heart and mind. That they, that the, it wasn't that there was no differences. It wasn't that they were a bunch of robots who looked the same and talked the same. They just allowed the thing that united them to be the most important thing. They didn't get distracted by less important things. They were united in purpose. They were chasing after the things that God had called them. They had one heart and one mind in the way that they chased after the things of God. They were all in. There was no such thing at that time of half-hearted, committed only when it's easy mindset. There wasn't the, the option to have one foot in the door and one foot out of the door. When it came to following Jesus, they were totally sold out and bought into what God was calling them to be. And I think it was because they really understood what Jesus had called them to be a part of as his church, as his 
ecclesia. When you look throughout the Bible, you see these different analogies that are used to describe what it means to be a part of the church. The Bible talks about that we are part of the body of Christ, that he is the head of the body, right? That he is the one who directs and leads, but that all of us, if you're part of the church, not just the local church, but the church as a whole, we're part of the body of Christ. We're we're connected. We're united. It's not just a bunch of separate bodies going separate directions, doing their own thing. We're all part of the body of Christ. He is the leader, and we follow and do what he wants us to do. Another time in the Bible, it says that we are part of the temple of God, that we are like living stones, that he is the chief cornerstone, right? The most important stone, the foundational piece of the temple, but that all of us, when we give our lives to Christ, we are brought into the temple of God. We are living stones that he is building into his church, his people. We're called the the people of God, right? The set-apart people. We looked at in 1 Peter, the the chosen priest, the royal priest, the chosen generation, whatever you want to call it, we're we're God's people. And then there's another one, analogy that we we look at where the church is referred to as the the bride of Christ. And I love that analogy because when you you are part of weddings, when you go to a wedding, I I did a wedding a a couple weeks ago for a young couple from our church, there's something, something beautiful that takes place in those moments. There's a weight that you hopefully feel. If you've if you're married in here, hopefully you felt the weight of that, that covenant, that commitment. When you're making those vows, you're not just kind of going through them, and you're not just, if you just get up there and you're just repeating something, and you don't actually think about what it means, and you don't feel the weight of that, then like, you probably shouldn't get married. You should be feeling the, the weight of that moment. You should be feeling the, the depth of that, that it's not the same as just a dating relationship at that point, that there's a, a commitment, a covenant there, something so much more, right? Like the Bible says, it's, it's two lives becoming one flesh. There's an intimacy, a connection, a weight that you should feel in that moment as you're committing your life to that person. And the same analogy that, they use, that he uses for, for that covenant relationship of a husband and wife is the same analogy that he uses to talk about the relationship that he has between Jesus and his bride, the church. That there's a, a covenant, there's an intimacy, there's, there's a connection there, something beautiful that he desires to have. And I think the problem is, and the difference that we see between the early church and what we see in most of our American churches is that the early church understood that there was a covenant, this, this, this beautiful intimacy that they were called to be a part of. And, and they understood that, that marriage kind of commitment where for many of us, we, we like to prefer, we prefer instead of that marriage commitment, we kind of prefer a dating relationship with God. We, we, we kind of struggle with commitment. We have a little bit of cold feet when it comes to being committed. We, we like to, to, to church shop, right? And we like to find a church that will meet all of our needs and, and that will be all the things that we expect. And, and we want almost like the church to be friend with benefits or just kind of a boyfriend, but, but we don't really want the covenant and the commitment of, of a marriage. And, and, and Jesus did not say that the, the church is his, his girlfriend. He said the church is his bride that he lays down his life for. And they understood that commitment. I think we need to get back to understanding that commitment, that there's no such thing as, as, as half-hearted Christian. There's no such thing as, as halfway committed. It's an all-or-nothing type of a commitment. Are you fully committed? Are you fully devoted? Are you all in? Because the early church understood that. The, number, the, the second thing that we see with the early church is they lived a lifestyle of worship. And one of our main purposes as the church of Jesus Christ is, is worship and exaltation of God. That's why we, we exist. That's why what we do here on Sunday mornings is so important. And, and listen, there's something powerful that takes place when we raise our voices together in worship. There's something powerful that takes place when we're together. And, and let me just be clear that, that the team up here is not, it's not a concert, right? Like if you come in, you're like, I love our band. I love the concert, the lights. That's not a concert. This isn't a concert at all. In fact, this is, they're the leaders of the band, and you guys are the backup singers, right? Like we're a part of this together. And the, this is the reason you're not up here is just because you can't sing as good. That's the only thing. It's, some, like that's, there's a reason that Mike and I don't, we just t- turn our microphones off on Sunday. I literally unplug my mic so I don't forget. Because if I start leading worship, you're going to find a different church, right? Like, and so I don't, I don't want you to hear that. But we're all part of the worship team, right? This isn't a concert. They're the ones who are leading us into the presence of God. And we together as the body of Christ exalt the Lord. We sing God's praises together. There's something powerful that takes place that you can't experience when you're just in your car worshiping by yourself. Something powerful that takes place when we together declare God's goodness. But can I tell you, this is not all that worship is. In fact, if this is the only way that you worship, if this is the only time that you worship, if this is the only time you sing God's praises, declare God's praises all week, then you're seriously missing out on what worship is meant to be. Worship is meant to be a lifestyle. And I want you to understand, the early church got this. Anything you do, when you do it for the glory of God, is meant to be worship to Jesus. I love how it says it in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And I don't often read from the message version, but I want to read this verse from the message version because I think it just makes it very, very 
practical. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says this. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. I want you to take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. This is that verse in Romans where it talks about your lives being a living sacrifice that's holy and pleasing to the Lord. This is your spiritual act of worship. What he's saying is that when we live our lives for God's glory, when we understand that worship is not just something we declare with our mouth, but it's the way that we live our lives. When we understand that, we can see that everything we do and everything we say can be worshiped to God. In Colossians 3.17, it says it like this, and whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Worship is something that should be a part of every area of our lives. It should be woven into everything that we do. And we see this in the early church when it says they were devoted. What does it say they were devoted to? They were devoted to, to being consistent when it came to the apostles' teaching. I mean, they understood that consistently being in the temple, consistently being fed, consistently being challenged in the Word was something that they needed, and so they were devoted to that. They were devoted not only to spending time in the temple, but they were also devoted to spending time in small groups. They would, the Bible says, meet together in homes, right? not just for meals, but, but to build each other up, to encourage each other, to be the body of Christ. They were devoted to, to true fellowship we're going to talk about in just a moment. They were devoted not only to those things, but they were also devoted to, to living sacrificial lives for each other. The Bible says that they would sell what they had and they would give to provide for each other. They were devoted simply to doing life together. They were devoted to worshiping, not just with their words at the temple, but with their lives every single day. Worship wasn't a Sunday thing. It was an every day and every way thing. And so what does this look like for us? What does it look like for us to begin to live this out? Well, for many of us, it, it starts on Monday because we leave church and we worship together on Sunday mornings. But then for a lot of us, we go to a job that we don't really like. We see your Facebook posts, right? Well, here comes Monday again. It comes every week. I got to go to work. I hate my boss. Hashtag job stinks, right? Like, you just, like, we, we just kind of, we're so consumed, we forget that, that, wor that worship isn't just what we do on Sundays, that worship is what we do on Mondays as well, which means when you go to that job that you really don't like, and that boss that you don't really care for, and that coworker that annoys you, which I joked about is, is me here at our office, I'm that coworker that annoys everybody. When you do those things, right, when, when you actually work hard, when you actually make a difference, when you, you're not ultimately working for your boss. The Bible says that whatever you do, you do for the glory of God. And so ultimately what that means is when you go to your job and you have a difficult boss or a difficult coworker, you still choose to work hard because you know that you're not ultimately working for them, you're ultimately working for your king, King Jesus. And no matter how bad of a boss you have or how annoying your coworker is, ultimately you, you serve a king and he is worthy of your best praise. And so you work as unto the Lord and you work hard and you make your employer's life easier and better and you make their business more successful because ultimately you do it as a representative of Christ. When you get in your car and you're driving down the road and somebody cuts you off, instead of telling them they're number one, you remember that Jesus is number one in your life. You remind yourself that even when you're in the car, you worship Jesus. And so your actions you do, everything you do as a representative of Christ, the Bible says we are his ambassadors. We leave here every single week as ambassadors for Christ with the message and the hope of the gospel everywhere we go. That means when you go to the grocery store, you serve extra hard. And, and instead of getting annoyed by all of the hundreds of lazy people who leave their carts all over the place, you decide to help push those carts back. You become a part-time unpaid employee of Walmart. You're already doing it anyway with self-checkout. You might as well work a little bit harder for your lack of money. You work hard, not because you get paid by Walmart, because you ultimately work for Jesus. When you go to the restaurant, you have a terrible waiter or waitress, and they look like they hate life, and they're giving you bad service, and they won't get you a refill of iced tea. Instead of giving them a lousy tip to prove your point, you give them a great tip, not because they earned it, but because you serve Jesus, and he's called you to be generous with what he has blessed you with. We live it out. Worship is not just what we do on Sundays. It's how we live our life every day and every way. Third thing, they were relationally invested. What I mean by this is they were committed to doing life together. They were committed to, to true Christian fellowship, and I know that word, that word, I've grown up in church, that word's kind of a churchy word, right? Like when I think of fellowship, I think of a potluck, which is where everybody brings casseroles, right, in this area. Everybody just brings like random, you don't even know what you're eating, but you just eat it because there's lots of food there. That's what I think of when I think of fellowship, right? I don't know about you, if you've grown up in church, maybe that's what you think of too, but I think we, because it's such a churchy word, we miss out on the, 
the richness of what fellowship is supposed to be. Fellowship is, is this Greek word koinonia, which really, it means like um, to walk together in unity. It's so much more than just having a meal. It's so much more than just hanging out. It's, it's deep, real, life-changing commitment and relationship with people. And all throughout the Bible, we, all throughout the New Testament specifically, we see all of these commands that were given in the church, all these one another's, right, that we're called to live out. And I think those one another's, when we walk out and we do those things and we live life together, true community, fellowship together, that's what true biblical fellowship koinonia really looks like. There's things like this. We're called to be devoted to one another. We're called to encourage one another, to serve one another. We're called to lay down our lives for one another. We're called to humble ourselves and to carry each other's burdens. We're called to truly love one another. And it's impossible to do these things when all we do is sit in a row on Sunday mornings and then we leave and we come back the next week and sit in a row. Again, it's impossible to, to practice all of this true biblical fellowship, this true relational investment that we're called to have if all we ever do is show up on a Sunday sit for a little bit, listen to somebody speak God's word, leave and never change anything and never get relationally invested. Like what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 through 25, it says, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now the day of his return is drawing near. What's he saying is that as a church family, our calling is to, to stir each other up to good works, to encourage each other, to build each other up, to, to strengthen each other. Like, can I tell you, you're not made to serve Jesus in isolation. You're not made to follow Jesus on your own. This is not like a Lone Ranger type of thing. We're made to go through life together. We need each other. It's impossible to do those one another's when you're not in relationship, real biblical fellowship with other people. We need each other. Especially, the Bible says, the more is the day gets. That's why he says, don't neglect meeting together which a lot of people did during COVID because it just became easier to sit and watch church on, on your TV screen without doing your hair or brushing your teeth or without even actually putting clothes on. You just kind of got comfortable. But it's impossible to do all of those one another's that he's called us to do when we're in isolation. We need each other. Even those difficult people in your life that are part of the body of Christ, God put them there to encourage you, to strengthen you, to build you up, to, to make you a better follower of him. We need each other. And for many of us, we, rich, we, we miss out on truly being the church because we refuse to pursue anything more than those surface level relationships. We, we, have, a guard, we have our guard up. We, we, carry, we wear that mask everywhere we go and we refuse to, to open ourselves up and let our guard down and allow people to get close to us who, who God wants to be in our lives to encourage us and to build us up. And if we're going to be the church that God has called us to be, we can't settle for, for surface level relationships. We need to to choose to be relationally invested. We need to choose to, to learn how to do life together, to build each other up. The fourth thing we see is that the church, the early church, they were full of contributors, not consumers. The early church was others-focused. They were outer-focused. They, they, they didn't live selfish lives, but they pursued living selfless lives. Really, really different than the typical American churches where the mindset is more, mostly of a consumer. And it's just how we are, like it's built into our nature, right? If you're an American, you're a consumer, that's just what we are, right? We buy certain things, we eat certain places, we choose, there's, come on, let's, how many pizza shops are in this town? Like 65, like there's 65 pizza shops, you're not going to just go to whichever one, you find one that you like, that has the best food, that serves the best way, and you give them your, your business, and sometimes we bring that same mindset into our churches. We look for a church that will check off all the boxes that will meet all of our needs. And we think that the church as a whole exists just to meet all our needs. But when we look at the early church, it wasn't like, hey, what does your church have for me? It was, hey, what can I bring to be a part of the church? How can I contribute to what God is doing? Not what can I have? What can I take? How can I consume? It was how can I contribute? How can I be a part, a different mindset and different mentality because I think it's because they understood that everything that God had given them, every blessing that they have, every finance that they had, everything they had was ultimately God's and they were called to live open-handed lives, right? And so they understood that everything that God had blessed them with wasn't about themselves, it was ultimately for God's glory. They understood what the Bible said in 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 10, it says, God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Can I tell you, every single person in here, if you're a follower of Christ, this is for you. It says, God has given you, you can say, well, I don't know where I'm gifted. I don't know what I'm good at. I don't know what my skills, my talents, my abilities, or all those other kind of things. The Bible says that you are gifted. There's nobody in here that has not been gifted by God. God has gifted you from his great variety of spiritual gifts. And this is what it says. It says, but use them well 
to serve one another. That ultimately what he has given you is not about you. It's ultimately about him and about others. You use it to serve other people. So in Romans, it goes on to say this in verse 12, uh, chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. It says, in his grace, God has given us different gifts. Which means all of us have different gifts, talents, and abilities that God has given with to be used for his kingdom and his glory. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, then speak out with as much faith as God has given you. If your gift is serving others, then serve them well. If you are a teacher, teach well. If your gift is to encourage others, then be encouraging. If it is giving, give generously. If God has given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. And if you have the gift for showing kindness to others, do it gladly. In other words, in order for us to be the church that God has called us to be, we have to understand that we all have a part to play. That every single one of you in this place has gifts, talents, and abilities that God has given you. And he's placed you here in our church family. Not just to consume, but to contribute to the mission of his church. Are you a consumer or a contributor? Are you using what God has given you for his glory, for his purpose? Or do you just consume? And then the last thing that we see is that the early church, they were mission focused. They knew that God had called them to share the good news of the gospel and they never lost sight of that mission. They never lost sight of the mission, and their, their mission motivated their actions, meaning everything they did flowed out of who God had called them to be and what God had called them to do. And so you look at this early church, you see that they lived it out, right? They, they practiced their faith. It wasn't just a one day a week, a Sunday thing. It was an every day. They lived out their faith. Their lives looked different than those around them. And then when they had the opportunity, they proclaimed the truth of God's word, the gospel message with their, with their words, which is the same way that we're called to live out the gospel as well. That as followers of Christ, our lives should look different. If you're a follower of Christ, everything about your life should look different than somebody who doesn't know Jesus, who's not surrendered to Jesus. The way that you work should be different. Not because it's just because you're different, but because you serve a God who's changed your life. And so you work as under the Lord. The way that you view money will be different. The way that you live your life and, and the, the things that you watch and the things that you do and the way that you forgive and the way that you love people who are hard to love, all of those things should be different because of what Jesus has done in your life. And when people look at you and they say, why do you... Why do you live like that? Why do you have so much joy in the midst of that? Why do you love that person who's really hard to love? Why do you forgive that person who, who doesn't really deserve your forgiveness? It gives you an opportunity to share. The Bible says to always be prepared to share with people the hope that you found in Christ. Share what God has done in your life and let them know that God can do the same in their life. And what do we see happening? Because they live so mission-focused, the Bible says that each day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. It wasn't a one-time thing where there was these 3,000 people who became followers of Christ. It was an everyday thing. Every day, more and more people were, were coming to Christ. More and more people were joining into the family of God, and they were discipling them and leading them. It was every day because they lived, they lived out these, these core values, these characteristics in their life. And so the question I want to ask as we get prepared to close today is this. How, how are we doing? How are, we, how are you doing in your life living these out? And, and how are we doing as a church family, local expression of the church? How are we doing being a church that lives out and practices these things? Are we a church that is full of fully devoted, all-in followers of Christ? Are we a church that's full of people who worship not just on Sunday mornings, but worship with our lives? Are we a church that is full of people who, who don't just pursue surface-level relationships, but actually pursue real, life-changing, intimate, close-knit relationships, understanding that we're a family? Are we a church that understands our mission? Are we a church that is full of people who serve and contribute more than consume? Are we living this out? And if not, how do we get there? How do we get there? Because I'll be honest with you, when you look at our core values of our church, and some of you don't even know what those core values are, maybe you're so new here, we talk about those core values a lot, they're, they're posted in different places in the, the church, but when you think about those core values, all of those core values come from what you see in this early church. I want you to understand when you see those core values, those aren't where we've arrived either. And we, don't, we don't declare those core values as, as areas where we've reached perfection as a church. We haven't. These are who we're striving to be. When you think of our church family, when you think of Morningstar Fellowship in, in Pennsburg and Quakertown, these are the, the values that we want to chase after, the things that we want to focus on. So when you think of our core values, what are they? That we're a church that is all about Jesus. I said in the first service, if there's any time that, that Jesus no longer is the foundation of our church, that we don't preach Christ and him crucified, and we don't preach salvation through Christ alone, if at any point we make anything else in this church more important than Jesus, feel free to leave and find a different church that preaches Jesus. Please. Because we can never get away from Jesus being the foundation that this church is built on. We're also a church that is here for others. 
Meaning we understand that we, we not, we're not only going to have an inward or an outward, we're going to have an upward focus, which means we're going to love each other, but we're also going to have eyes to see the needs of others, that we're going to be people who are prepared to reach those who do not yet know Christ. We're going to always be a church that shares the good news of the gospel and gives opportunities for people to find salvation through Christ in Christ alone. We're going to be a church that looks for opportunities to serve our neighbors, to love our neighbors, because we're not just an inward-focused church, we're an outward-focused church. We're here for others. We're also sacrificially generous. We got to live that out a few weeks ago uh, on Easter, and I love celebrating with, with our campus last week as I told them what we were able to be a blessing to, how together, there's something powerful like together, right? That, that just one of us alone, that would be a ginormous amount to give, but when we, we think about how we come together and we are able to be a blessing to the Philadelphia Dream Center and to give all of that money which is going to be used to change lives in Philadelphia, it was amazing to be able to do that, but we don't do that just once a year. We don't do that just on Easter. We live sacrificially generous lives all the time. We live open-handed lives because it's how God has called us to live. We're generous with our money. We're generous with our time. We're generous with our talents, our treasure, our resources, all of it. We're here to serve. Serving isn't something we just do every once in a while. It's who we are. It's how we live. It's our DNA. We serve not just on Sunday mornings, but we serve in our families. We serve in our workplace. We serve wherever we go because we are here to serve. Jesus came to serve, and we are going to be like Jesus, and we're going to serve others. And lastly, we're united in purpose. We're a church who, who's going to keep the main thing the main thing. We're going to continue to keep the mission of Jesus Christ for our church first and forefront, which means we're not going to lose track of that. We're not going to be distracted by petty differences. We're going to be a church that pursues the mission that God has given us, which is to reach those who are far from Christ. You think about the church's dynamics. When you think about our church, what we're striving to be. Are you living it out? Are you practicing this? Are you are you simply going to church, attending the church, or are you actually living to be the church? Because again, church is not just something you attend or something you go to. The church is a movement that you are a part of, that I'm a part of. The big church, the universal church. But it's also a family, what we live here, what we practice here. And Morningstar Fellowship, it's a family that we're called to be a part of. And so we, are we living this out? Would you stand with me as we close? I want to give you a few action steps as we close today. And we're going to close with communion and worship in just a moment. And I know this was a little long, so I appreciate you hanging with me, but I want to just share a couple action steps with you. Really, really, really practical today. I think sometimes it's just what it needs to be, right? Because we, call, we said, even with our theme this year, we're not called to just be hearers of God's Word, but doers of God's Word, which means when we come to church, we don't just listen and go, okay, God, that was good. We go, okay, how can I apply this to my life? How can I begin to live this out? So there could be many action steps for you today. There may be just one action step, but I want to give you a few to look at. And, and as we close in prayer and communion and worship, I want you to invite the Holy Spirit to show you what that action step is for you. The first one I would say is this. If you're here today and you're not yet a follower of Christ, the action step for you is simply to surrender your life to Jesus. There's a difference between going to church and following Jesus. You might even be a member of church. You might be a member of multiple churches, but someday you're going to stand before God and you're not going to show Him all your membership cards to all the different churches. What brings you in, what, what, what changes your life isn't that you went to church, that you attended church, that you checked that box. What, what changes your life is the fact that you've given your life to Jesus, that you've accepted His forgiveness for your sins, that He has done for you what you could never do for yourselves. The Bible says when you give your life to Christ, you become a new creation, that that old you is dead and gone, and there's a new person that is alive and well. And it's not because of anything you've done, it's because of what Jesus has done for you. If you're here today, it doesn't matter if you've grown up in church, and been in church your whole life, if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, I want to encourage you, before you leave this place today, to surrender your life to Him, to receive His forgiveness for your sins, to allow Him to be the Lord and Savior of your life. There's no magic words that you have to pray. There's no repeat after me. It's not even about your words. It's about your heart. And so as we close in prayer, I want you in your own words, if that's you today, and you know that you don't, don't yet know Christ, and you're not known by Him, I want to encourage you to just give Him your life. And then before you leave today, I want to encourage you to either fill out that card and let us know you're making the decision so we can, we can pray with you and we can give you some resources or just let somebody know. We want to celebrate with you if that's you today. For those of you who are here who maybe already do know Christ, I want to give you just a couple challenging points as we close. The first one is this. I want to challenge you when it comes to church to be consistent. Yeah, I know we're getting into, getting into the summertime and there's vacations and I joke all the time, if you're going with your kids, it's not a vacation, it's a family trip. If you're going without your kids, it's a vacation. So I know you're going to take some time for vacation and hopefully you take some time to spend with just your spouse. Maybe you're going to take some time with your kids and build memories and all those things. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's good. We're all going to go away and we're going to do things as well. 
But I want to just encourage you, don't take the whole summer off from being the church. Like, don't get so out of, just like, like good habits are hard, bad habits sometimes are easy to do. And what happens is we just kind of get in the habit of having our Sundays off and not being together and not being there to encourage each other and living in isolation. And life just kind of gets easy. It's easier, if we're honest, to not have to be around people, to not have to invest in people's lives, to not be together. It's easier to go through that. And I think, I think that's why a lot of people struggled to come back to church after after COVID it wasn't just fear or other things it was just that you got comfortable comfortable doing church in your underwear with nobody else around comfortable not having to 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 be around that annoying person that church person that that always wants to give you a hug or whatever it is you just kind of got comfortable so I want to just challenge you and encourage you not to not go on vacations not to not do those things but just to to be as consistent as you can be. Make church a priority. Make sure that you're building that priority for your kids because I tell you, if you're, if you're a parent, your kids are watching too. And you're painting a picture of what's important in their lives. And when you take the entire summer off, what you're showing them is church is important until, until the weather's nice. Being together with other believers is important unless there's something better to do. And so just let me encourage you not to not take a vacation, but let me just encourage you to not take the entire summer off from following Jesus and being the family. It's hard to be a family when we don't see each other, right? Second thing, I want to encourage you to take your next step. For everybody in here, it could be different. For some of you, that might mean getting baptized coming up on May 22nd. At a time where we can celebrate with you when you walk in obedience to what God has called you to do. That baptism is that outward declaration of the inward transformation that God has made in your life. It's identifying yourself with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. The Bible says when you go into that water, it represents your old life. When you go under the water, it represents that you are, that your old life is buried with Christ. And when you come up out of the water, it represents that you are raised to new life with Christ. You're identifying with his death, burial, and resurrection. It's a public declaration that you are living for Christ. And some of you are like, well, I was baptized when I was a kid like when I was a kid my parents you know, got my head wet or whatever and I would just tell you that you, you weren't really baptized you were just kind of a wet sinner at that point and I, I know that might be offensive but that's all right baptism is that outward obedience and it's something that we do after we've surrendered our life to Christ and so if you've never done that since you made a decision to follow Jesus make that decision maybe that next step for you is signing up for all in which also takes place on May 22nd been coming for a while but you kind of been sitting on the sidelines and you just need to, to know if this is the church like listen wherever you go whether that's here or another church I don't honestly if it's not here and there's another church where you can be committed to then be committed but if it's here be committed all in is that next step that you take helps you understand what your next steps are helps you understand what what is available to you you talk we talk about our history our DNA you can ask questions about who we are if this is the right fit for you there's also free food so that's a bonus but if you've never been to that, you were looking at being a member of the church, whatever else it is, then sign up for All In. Whatever that next step is, I want to encourage you to take it. Maybe that next step is, is that you need to be a contributor. They've been here for a while, and you just kind of sit on the sidelines. You come every week, drink some, some coffee that somebody else showed up to make. You enjoy all the benefits of other people serving, but you kind of sit on the sidelines. And you maybe make excuses, you don't know what to do, or you don't know how to serve. And can I just tell you, serving is not something that we have to pray about doing. It's just something that God has commanded us to do. We don't have to go, you know what, I'll pray about if I should be obedient. You don't have to pray and ask God if you should be obedient to something he's told you to do. You just need to do it. So find it where God has gifted you. How can you be I've often thought about this. What would it look like for us as a church, right? If we, right now we maybe have about 30 to maybe 40% of the people that would be generous that are people, adults who are here that are actually serving and, and using their gifts, talents, and abilities. What would it look like if we had 75, 85, 90% of the people who come through our doors every single week are adults that are here, that love Jesus, that are using their gifts, talents, and abilities? What would it look like? Because the Bible talks about us being the body of Christ and that each of us have a part. And I think that sometimes, instead of doing what God has called us to do, we kind of limp around through life because there's people who refuse to step up and use their gifts, talents, and abilities that God has given them. So what would it look like? If we all use the gifts, talents, and abilities that God has given us to serve others, how many more lives would we be able to impact? How much more would we be able to do for the kingdom of God if we all did our part? Maybe you're here and you're part of this church. If you're new to this church and, and you're just checking it out and you're here today for the first or second time or you're not sure, this, this is not for you. But for those of you who are here, who this is your home, step up. Use your talents and abilities that God has given you. Be a blessing to others. And then the last one is this. I want to encourage you to get intentional with the relationships. 
We're not really having our full semester of connect groups. There's many Bible studies and other things to get involved with, but I want to encourage you that that doesn't mean you can't be intentional when it comes to building relationships with each other. Whether that means doing a small group with some friends and just looking at God's Word together or a Bible study together or a plan on you version together. Maybe that means, you know, you see the same people every single week at church and you see them and and you maybe say hi and there's like a surface level relationship there, but but maybe you got to take that relationship to the next level. Maybe you invite each other out for lunch. You go hang out. You have a picnic at your house or whatever it is. You take the step to go from from just surface level relationships to actually doing life together. Because can I tell you, you'll never bear each other's burdens if you don't really know each other. If you don't take the step, and I know that, that investing in people, it's a risk. I know it takes more work. I know it's a little bit harder to take those steps, but we'll never be the church that God has called us to be without it. You know, oftentimes I hear when, when we see people's visitor surveys that, that we're a friendly church. People say, I, I love how friendly it is when people walk in the doors. And I think, I, I agree, I think our church is very, very friendly. But what would it look like if we went from just being friendly to being family? Not surface level friendship, but real intimate relationships with each other where we know each other, where we encourage each other, where we walk together. That you know you have people when you're when your teenager is rebelling and you want to just kick them out of the house because it'd be easier, but you know you have people on your side who are praying for you, who are walking with you, who are encouraging you, who are also there to disciple and walk with that child. Because we're doing like like what would it look like for us to, to, to get past just that surface level? and have those real relationships. I just want to challenge you, whatever it is, whatever steps that God is calling you to take, we talk about not just being hearers of God's word, but doers of God's word. So what steps that God is calling you to take, let's just be obedient and step into what God has for us. Father, I thank you for your word today. God, I thank you even as we close in worship and communion in just a moment, God. We have this opportunity to not just go to church, but to be your church. God, I pray that you would convict us for those areas where we've settled for, for surface level, just checking that box, going through the motions, God. God, convict us in those areas where we've settled for less than your best when it comes to being your church. God, let us live set apart, called apart lives. God, let us not settle for ordinary, just average, just going through the motions. God, let us be a church that lives out your purposes in this world. Let us invest in relationships together. God, let us worship not just on Sundays, but with our lives. Let us serve, God, not just on Sundays, but every day of our lives. God, let us be contributors and not just consumers. Lord, we thank you that you've set us apart. You've called us to be something that's bigger than any of us individually. God, we thank you for what you're going to do, that you're not finished working in us yet. In Jesus' name.